0: Take me home to the place. I don't want to risk damaging my headphones again. <laughs> <laughs> they are very good sound quality and it, noise canceling, but they do not stay on my head when I whip it back and forth.
1: You I whip my headphones back, back and, forth? and forth. Whip my headphones. Back yeah. I <laughs> we we knew where that was going.
0: Yeah, I'm hip to all of the pop culture. Sweet, another Every song time. for the SoundCloud. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey.
1: And I'm Steph Vicari.
0: And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Steph, how's your spooky week going?
1: Oh, it's been so spooky. It's been great. I've been making progress on all the Halloween movies that I want to watch. The new one that I'm in the middle of, because I tend to like to break up movies. I understand that some people are very against this and don't understand at all why I like to do this, but there aren't many TV shows that I like. So I like to find a good movie and then watch it in sections so that way I can break it up over a couple of days. And so I am watching currently the movie The Witches. Are Ooh. you familiar with that one? Is this
0: the, um, I want to say it's Angelica Houston is the the Grand Witch. This is a roll doll, but yeah, uh, which they're remaking now, which I don't know how to feel about, but here we are.
1: So the remake just dropped yesterday and today is October 23rd. So that one is out. But yes, my husband has very strong feelings that we needed to watch the original since I haven't seen the original. So that's the one that we're watching instead. And we're halfway through and so far it's, um, yeah, it's good. I'm enjoying it.
0: Oh, that is iconic. Uh, I haven't watched that one in years. Maybe I'll revisit that. Um, But continuing on with the Angelica Houston theme, uh, two of the movies that my wife and I have watched, uh, this is following Hocus Pocus was our first, but we watched both Adam's Family and Adam's Family Values from 1991 and 1993, respectively. Those movies are, I've I've got some years on them, but they're just so good. Uh, Such wonderful, dark, but also loving family, just nonsense. Yeah, really, really good ones.
1: Did you say Adam's Family Values?
0: Yes. That's the sequel okay. to the original Adam's with 2Ds. I don't know why that um, must mean that they're evil or something, but uh, have you not seen these?
1: I am familiar with the Adam's Family, but I have truly never watched them. So I'm not familiar at all.
0: I don't know that I know them outside of the context of these movies, but the movies were just these fantastic creations. Christopher Lloyd's in it uh angelica houston as i said christina ritchie plays wednesday the evil evil daughter and she does such an amazing job of it uh yeah they're just so good so yes highly highly recommended
1: perfect i will add those to my list because i don't quite have enough to get me through all of october and it's far more fun to watch these movies than uh pay attention to other stuff so other stuff yeah it's my best life (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> which I'm realizing date wise, this episode will probably come out after Halloween. So uh, for anyone that's listening, you just write these down on a list and then you watch them next year or, you know, you do whatever you want. You ignore seasonal food trends and you ignore seasonal movie trends and you watch whatever you want whenever you want.
1: Yeah, just keep that spooky season going.
0: <laughs> I think tonight's spooky movie for my wife and I is going to be Practical Magic, which I don't think I've ever seen the entirety of, but it is a favorite of my wife. So that's that's tonight's plan.
1: Awesome. I can't wait to hear about it then how's your week been? Uh, What all have you been up to? In addition, of course, to Halloween movies.
0: Yeah, it's been good watching some Halloween movies. Also uh, received my Oculus Quest 2, which I insta bought when it came out on the Internet because it seemed like the right device for me. And I am very, very excited about this thing. It's weird. Like VR finally caught up. I remember using it years and years and years ago and it was terrible. And like it was like your head just hurt and everything was bad. And I'm amazed at this device. Uh, But I currently have Beat Saber which is the entire reason that I bought the device. And then I also have Superhot, which I just got today. And oh my God, is that game fantastic.
1: To this day, my favorite VR game that I've played is the one that Matt Sumner created during like a Rafa Palooza or like a Thoughtbot investment days uh, where he just wanted to make a VR game. And it's this uh, duck shooting game. And it's this just image of a duck with like the wings down and up. And then it just pivots like back and forth between those to simulate like a duck flying across the screen. And then you can pretend to shoot that duck. And I can't remember the sound, but it's hilarious. And it's still one of my favorite VR games I've ever played. I haven't heard of Hot. What is that
0: one just to loop back to matt sumner's game because it was fantastic and there's a weird history of matt producing all of the audio and visual assets for the games that he creates uh which is interesting now that i think about it but it was fantastic because he made the duck sounds and then whenever i think there was like one button on it and you would just have to look at the duck in vr and then press the button on the side of the headset and then it would shoot and if you hit the duck there was a sound which was the explosion and the sounds were Oh god! It that that game destroyed me. Uh, it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, easily the best VR game of all time. Second best is Superhot. In it, time moves when you move. So like, if you move either of the controllers, or if you move your head around at all, like even if you turn side to side, then time in the game is progressing. But if you stay completely still, everything else stays completely still. So there are bad guys coming to get you and or shooting guns at you, but you can stop time, and you can move around. And it's so immersive because of the vr thing and you're looking around in the space and it's it's fantastic
1: okay so i do know this game i just didn't know the name of it because currently most of my experience or my play time with oculus has been with friends who own a headset and i'm pretty sure that i played that particular game yeah that one's pretty intense because it's like so lifelike and you're shooting these characters and having to like run through a building or run through a course and yeah that that one's a lot of fun
0: yeah, I, I have a tiny, tiny uh, space that I'm playing in. It's just the living room, but I move the like Ottoman thing that we have out of the way. And the Oculus Quest is incredible where you just kind of like draw in space and tell it where the edges are and then it remembers. I don't know how it pulls that off, but it does a fantastic job. You know what it doesn't know about, though? So it's like, oh, okay, tell us where the floor is. Cool, that's where down. Got it. Uh, then tell us where the sides are. It does not ask about up. <laughs> so I have... Uh, punch the ceiling really hard in celebration. Uh, and then I've also uh, so in Super Hot, there's this weird thing where in the game you are a person putting on a VR helmet. So you have to reach up and grab this thing above your head. And I just punched the light in the ceiling. <laughs> the light is fine. It was a gentle. I, I, I bumped the light. Uh, but yeah, the system has no idea that I might live in a house with very low ceilings. And that's just my reality.
1: I mean, that's a real liability for you. Like, if you hurt your hands, you're in trouble.
0: (laughs) The controllers have enough protective whatnot that I'm just going to break them, not me. Mm. I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure. But you know what? (laughs) Famous last words. Uh, Yeah, here's hoping that I do not injure myself in a VR-related... Oh, God.
1: (laughs) I have heard, or it's my understanding with Oculus that they are switching over to previously or currently you have an Oculus account and you sign in, but soon you are going to be forced that you have to sign in with Facebook and you have to have a Facebook account. I'm not thrilled about that. I I wish that wasn't true.
0: Yeah, that does seem to be true. And I don't love that either. I was hoping to stay in just the land of lightness and games, but uh, you're going to keep us honest. Uh, I think that is a requirement for the Oculus Quest 2. I signed in through the Facebook account that I have, which I agree. I really, don't want that to be a thing. And I have many concerns about Facebook and it's, I don't know, space in the world. But um, yeah, I bought the headset and I signed in through Facebook. So say what you will about me.
1: It is what it is. How are you at Beat Saber?
0: Okay. Uh, I've only played a handful of times now, but um, I'm getting better. It's mostly just so fun. I enjoy rhythmic games. And so it is good at that. And also it's lightsabers. So it's like the perfect combination of stuff. So I don't even care if I'm good. I'm just going to have fun.
1: Well, I'm going to challenge you and say that you should share some of your Beat Saber scores with me so then I can beat them. I can crush them. <laughs> I, I think this is this would bring me joy.
0: <laughs> that sounds uh, fair and reasonable. So I will provide you scores and then you just get infinite tries and you get to beat them and then that will be that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm typically not a video game person. I think it's because I already spend a lot of time in front of a screen that then I don't want my hobbies to then also be more time in front of a screen because I've tried to get involved with other groups that are playing video games, even some colleagues. For a while, we were playing Rocket League, which is very hard, by the way. Uh, For anyone that's not familiar with Rocket League, it's playing soccer with cars, which yep, that's it. There are rockets
0: too on the cars. They're not just regular cars.
1: (laughs) That's fair. Nothing about this game is regular. (laughs) It is fun. It's challenging. But I didn't keep with it because I just didn't want to like end my day and then stay in front of my computer and then continue to play in that manner. But with VR, it has been different because at least I get to move around and it's more immersive. So I've I've had a lot more fun joining VR games and doing it that way. I haven't ever actually tried if there's like a way you can connect with someone and then play a game together or keep up with scores. That would be enjoyable. Is that something that you've had time to explore?
0: I have not. Although I think Beat Saber specifically just came out with a like multiplayer mode. I don't know what that means. Whether you're just like competing or whether you're actually in the like same virtual space. Uh, I don't know. That almost feels like too overwhelming. But I'm mm-hmm. very intrigued because I think VR with friends seems like a good option. So uh, yeah, I will definitely look into that and. You do the same and let me know, and maybe we'll have Bike Shed. uh, The next recording we'll just do in VR. It'll be better.
1: Yeah, that that seems reasonable.
0: (laughs) Just the two of us playing Beat Saber for 40 minutes, and that's the episode.
1: (laughs) Sure, people will love it.
0: (laughs) We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. So give it a try, and thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike
1: Shed. So speaking of stuff that hopefully people will enjoy, I am on a new project and I'm excited to tell you all about that new project. I just started earlier this week. I'm working with the amazing Amanda Biner, who is another Thoughtbot developer here in the Boston office. Ooh, I just said here in the Boston office. I am still with the Boston office, but I physically am not in Boston. That just got weird. (laughs) moving right past that. (laughs) Started this new project and I'm very excited about it because we are working with a team and we're putting together content for an RSpec class that is going to focus heavily on RSpec, but also just focus heavily on TDD and testing practices. The class is for about 60 to 70 engineers, and we're going to group them into smaller cohorts and then run them probably like 10 to 12 individuals in each class. And each cohort will go through probably about 16 hours of training, so about four or four-hour sessions, something like that. So we're in the process right now of where we are cultivating all that content, and everything that we're doing is very much catered around their code base. So one of the things that I have struggled with in the past myself and also noticed with some TDD classes is that they show you well-designed code or specific examples that make it quite easy to follow TDD, but then once you watch that video or go through those practice sets. And then you try to apply it to a different code base. It's incredibly complicated. And then it's hard to transition what you've learned in those sessions over to the actual code base that you're working on. So we're looking for real world examples that will be very applicable to their day to day.
0: Well, that sounds awesome. So you're going to be presenting the course a bunch of times to the different groups. That sounds fun.
1: Yeah, I'm, I think it will be. Right now it's still in that content creation phase, which is a bit overwhelming because creating 16 hours of content is daunting. Like there's a good bit that needs to go into that. And I'm also someone that doesn't do really well with like live Coding, like it's something that I can do, but then it's going to bring more anxiety. So I want a certain level of comfort with the material and a chance to rehearse before I'm going to present it to a larger group. So that way I'm not combating like public speaking nerves and then also live coding nerves and trying to reduce some of the risk. So yeah, we're going to put together the content and record each of the sessions. So then it's also sort of like a valuable class that folks can go back to to say, how do I work with untested code, for example? So actually let me back up and provide a little little more content. So this is a very large team um, or a fairly large team that uh, is already working actively within this code base. It's a very large code base. And they do have about, I think, 50% test coverage. And they are actively writing tests and they are transitioning to the phase where every new PR is expected to have test coverage. So they are writing tests, but they essentially, like tests haven't really gained their trust. Tests are more of a hurdle right now where they have to write the feature and then they're like, Oh yeah, I need to add some tests. They'll add some tests before they can actually ship it. So the purpose of the class is then to help them find ways to embrace TDD or testing in general in a way that feels profitable and feels like a valuable tool in their tool set versus something that they just have to like, Oh, I have to do this thing before people are going to review and look at my code. So I'm very excited for that larger conversation and perspective. And one of the reasons that we are looking in the code base for specific examples, because in a large code code base like that, it is very easy for tests to get to the point where they don't feel valuable and they take a long time or you have Blakey test. tests. Uh, so one question that I have for you, I'm curious, have you ever done something like this? Or if you were working on this particular project, I'm intrigued as to how you would go about and structuring the different topics or some of the themes that you think you would touch on.
0: Hmm, interesting. I don't think I've done anything specifically like this. So working with an organization and producing educational material tailored to their code base. But frankly, I love the idea because I think it's a really great way to to structure an engagement and to get a lot of value out of working with SOPOT. One thing that I think might be interesting and I don't know if you've done this is have you surveyed the developers about what they like what are their presenting issues and questions because I could come up with a bunch of stuff off the top of my head but it might not be the things that they feel like they need to hear.
1: Yes. I love that you mentioned that. That was one of the first things that Amanda and I had considered is a lot of the information that we're receiving is coming from engineering managers. So it's the people who are working with the engineers. Some of the engineering managers themselves are looking to level up with testing and RSpec, but then they're also looking to help the rest of their team. But there can be a disconnect between where like, say, if I as an engineering manager think someone else needs to level up the areas that I think that they're struggling with and the questions that I think they have versus having access to that person directly and saying, tell me in your own words, like what it is about tests that you enjoy, where do you feel uncertain, what areas would you like to improve? So we haven't had the chance to do that just yet, but that's something that we'll do next week is we'll get access to a number of the individuals that will go through the course so we can ask them directly, what are you excited about from this course? What would you love to learn? What would you like to hear us speak about?
0: Awesome. Yeah, I think that's a very important place to start because there can be uh, very different expectations or desires in terms of what folks want to hear. I think beyond that, there's a lot of specific topics. Like, I would obviously focus on let and before and how much we should use them all the time in every test. No, probably not that. Yeah, Probably none of that. (laughs) Um, But I think... Even though you're saying there's like 16 hours for a given presentation to a group, that sounds like a ton of time. But in my experience, it is maybe this is just me, but it's very easy to fill up a bunch of time and still be like, oh, man, there's so much more I want to say. And so one of the things that I would probably keep in mind is how do we share a love of testing? Like we love testing, but not just because I'm pretty sure it's not just because we drank some Kool-Aid a while ago and testing now sounds great. Like we actually get a lot of benefit from it. It is a trusted partner in our adventures of building code. And so how can you sort of capture that idea and explain those themes? And what does it feel like when tests are actually supporting you along the way and guiding? You know, why is TDD useful? It's not just because it says so in a blog post, but it provides feedback as you're working and so can you give an example that shows that sort of thing happening Um, but very much i think there's a lot of like structured here's an example of how to write a feature spec using capybara and some of the the tips and practices in there but also how do we make sure testing is something that we want to do and that we're going to continue to put in the effort and investment towards as opposed to something that we're told to do or have to do? Um, because I, I think, again, we're very big believers in it, but there's a reason for that. There's something that we've learned or felt along the way. And so if you can capture that and give it to them, then frankly, they'll probably you know figure out the rest of the details, which, again, hopefully also provide the rest of the details. but.
1: Yeah. Sandy Matt says one of my favorite things about testing because I, I agree that a lot of people when they hear the term like TDD or BDD, it can be a contentious term where it's something that they have had a negative experience with. They have felt pain from it and they just see it's, as you mentioned, it's like Kool-Aid that somebody's drinking and they are evangelical about it and they think it's the right way to write tests. And Sandy Metz approaches it in such like a practical way. I love when she talks about testing and how she phrases it. And one of the things that I heard her say is that if the overall cost associated with the process of writing tests cost us more than not having tests, then we wouldn't do it. Like we're going to do whatever leads to the most profit for like in terms of productivity and also for the company. So there are very concrete reasons that we choose to test. And as you'd mentioned, it's about sharing those reasons and helping people discover the value of test. And it's not so much of a following that ideology of like, you know, whether testing is good or bad. It's like, this is how we actually add value to our process. So then we can catch bugs earlier. We can document the behavior of our application and then have those real brought to life values uh, be a reason for testing versus because you're following a, a trendy process.
0: Testing so hot right now. So,
1: uh, you know, I keep hearing it's dead. So maybe <laughs> that'll be the title of the talk, testing so hot right now. <laughs> I'm bringing it back.
0: TDD is dead, long live TDD. I'm sure there's at least five blog posts with that title. But um, I think actually the, the other thing, as you say, some of that, that idea of cost, there is an upfront cost to writing tests. It's not free. But I think part of the interesting thing for me is that the value is often a little bit more in the future. Like in theory, TDD applies an immediate pressure that helps you write better code now. But for most of my considerations, I think of testing as a long-term investment in my ability to change the code over time. And that is such a hard thing to sort of instill in someone that idea. That long time horizon becomes really complicated. But I think the practical front-loaded version of that is making sure that your tests are decoupled from implementation details and that your tests are constraining the system in useful ways but not over constraining it not saying there must be a button on the page but instead saying click the thing and the, you know the subtle difference between those two mean that as we change the system our tests aren't going to break constantly for reasons that are not real our tests will only break ideally when we change something that we shouldn't have so i think that idea is really important to be the sort of front loaded version of tests are about maintaining our software over time.
1: I agree. I think that is often one of the struggles with testing is if you are new to testing, you don't see the value from it right away. And it does feel like a process and something that you're having to learn and like sort of like these good rules that you're trying to follow. And then over time, you start to feel the benefit. I think the most immediate value that someone new to testing could feel from that process is the feedback loop. So instead of having to test something through the UI or having to find another way to test your code, that is the quick feedback. So you know that you are making progress and that your application, that your code is doing exactly what you expect. And then those long-term payoffs, as you've mentioned for uh, when you are that developer and you're part of a code base and you're diving into a feature and you're not really confident like what this feature does, or if you need to make changes to it, and then being able to turn to test and see the documented behavior and also be able to make changes to that feature as well, and then run the test to make sure that you haven't broken anything, that's where you start to really feel like this is something that's very valuable to me and I want the rest of the code base to have. this as well. And then over time, there's also the benefits of good design, but then that also will take practice to understand how our tests are going to help drive that good design and help us reduce the coupling between our classes and our code. So I agree, but it sounds like most of the folks that will be going through this class are already pretty familiar with testing, but they are just looking for ways to improve their testing process so that they feel more value from it. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I, I think it will be a lot of fun to put this content together. And it's just a bit different than what I'm used to where it is challenging to be on the side of looking through the code base and seeing areas that I can bring up as a theme of areas of improvement, but I myself am not going to implement those improvements or issue it as a PR, but instead I am bringing it to a group of like 60 to 70 individuals. And instead they're the ones that are going to carry it forward. That part feels very different for me, but it feels like a good challenge that I'm eager for.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a very novel engagement, but hopefully, uh, I think the potential rewards of it, if you're able to help 60 people all get a little bit more comfortable and engaged with the testing process, then the returns on that, like you're a 60x developer. Congratulations.
1: (laughs) Did you say 60? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, That took a moment for my brain to compute. One of the other questions that came up was, how do we know this class was a success? So once a number of individuals have participated and the course is over, how do we then go back and say, did this feel like a valuable use of your time? What did you learn? How well did it go? Do you think you can carry these principles forward? Are you excited to write test or update test? But asking those questions of like, how do we go back and measure, like, did we do a good job? And that's something that I've been thinking about heavily to then help influence like how we actually structure the class as well
0: there's definitely quantitative ways that you could do it. Like you mentioned the code coverage as it currently stands. But I find that those are always really tricky. Anytime you try and use those sort of quantitative measures for what ultimately is probably more of a qualitative thing, it becomes really difficult. Uh, I wonder if there's a survey beforehand. Can you survey again a month later? And that gets into like, how how comfortable are you? How likely are you to write tests before you do something, after you do something, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I feel like, just a 1 to 10 scale of like, how do you feel about testing? 1 is very bad. 10 is very good. You can't pick 7. How do you feel? I'm a big believer in not picking 7 on 1 to 10s, just as an aside. It's the default answer.
1: Okay. I was going to poke at that a little further. Is that? Okay. (laughs) I I
0: feel like I said it. So then I was like, I should probably explain why I'm saying you cannot. I do believe in the number 7. I'm not a (laughs) <laughs> Not trying to say that seven doesn't exist. Uh, just it, it, like I'll often notice if I'm thinking about, you know, today was a pretty good day on a scale from one to 10 and seven is always the number that comes to mind. I was like, yeah, it's pretty good. And so taking seven out forces it to be either a six or an eight. And those are very different. And so I was like, it was actually, no, it was a really good day. It was an eight. It's like, eh, it, was, it was okay, and, but it was more of a six. Uh, so I found removing seven. And it's a pro tip right there.
1: Pro tip. I'll keep that in mind. Yeah.
0: Or a ridiculous idea that people shouldn't do. I don't know. It's worked for me.
1: Pro tip, ridiculous tip. One of those.
0: (laughs) I just live my life by these sort of good idea, bad idea. Well, yeah, I'm super excited to hear more about this as it goes on, both in terms of the content that you're producing, but also how that gets specialized to the organization. And then how long is the engagement supposed to be?
1: Uh, So we have a couple of weeks to create the content, and then we're going to run a beta cohort through the class. And this is going to be composed of a number of their engineering managers, uh, some of the other engineers. And then we also want to include someone that's more on a junior level as well, because we want to make sure that our content hits at each level and is applicable to everyone that's in the room. So we'll go through the beta cohort, get some feedback, um, go back to the drawing board, make some updates, and then we'll run through for two weeks, all the other cohorts. So uh, overall, probably about five weeks.
0: Awesome. Well, yeah, like I said, super excited to hear how that goes. And um, it sounds like a really well structured thing. I feel like it could be really easy to say, hey, we want to do an R training. Let's do it in a week. And it's sort of a rushed, hurried process. But it sounds like there's a purposeful block of time dedicated to this. And I think there's the opportunity to actually do a really great job. So excited to hear more.
1: Yeah, I'll be sure to have more updates next time. Uh, but what's new in your world?
0: Well, now that you ask, um, I think it's time for another round of good idea, terrible idea.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: So I brought up a topic a few episodes back under the title, Good Idea, Terrible Idea. Uh, Turned out it was a good idea with a terrible implementation and many kind folks in the audience uh, provided useful feedback around that. In this case, what I want to do is I want to describe a technical decision that I am contemplating or some architectural choices that I'm making. Uh, And I want, if you're open to it, I want you to play the role of the tech lead on the team that I'm working on. Uh, There's not a tech lead on this team. It's a very small team. But let's pretend... I'm a very excited developer. You are the tech lead of the team that I'm working on, and I'm suggesting a bunch of technologies that you are not terribly familiar with, and I'm trying to sell you on them. So that's where we're at.
1: All right. I'm here for it.
0: You're unfortunately vaguely familiar with some of these technologies, but...
1: I'm glad you're coming back to me with this good idea, terrible idea, because I feel like I let you down last time.
0: No, you did great. I think you actually said very useful things, even in that first one, where it was less well-formed of a thing at this point i've actually already done the thing that i'm about to explain to you so we're off to the races but let's talk about whether or not i should Wait, have so
1: is this a bull question <laughs> it's not
0: i haven't merged the pr so you could convince me to unwind it or there's a couple of different pieces to it which i think is kind of interesting so you could talk me out of one or two of them but at the heart of it is the idea of sort of experimentation budget uh how much new weird stuff are we willing to take on within a code base Uh, And how do we sort of ask questions around that? Uh, So to give just a little bit of context on the decision that I'm actually making or the the code that I'm working on, the organization that I'm working with has a core Rails app, basically serves as an API for two different mobile apps, but they also have a couple of different web properties. And I use that weird phrasing because they ended up being implemented as individual React apps. I think there are five distinct deployable uh, apps. They each exist on their own subdomain. They communicate with the core Rails app via an API, via the API, Uh, but they have their own concepts around auth and payment management and things. They're each their own deployable unit. And so anytime we want to make an update, it's difficult. Anytime there's subtle branding changes or things like that, it's difficult. And unfortunately, they've been a little more brittle than we would want. So what we've decided is we're actually not getting a ton of benefit by them being a React app or out there on their own. So we're going to slowly fold them back into the core application. So pull them back into the world of Rails. that was the idea. That's the work to be done right now. Pull slowly each of these five applications back in. But as I started to work on it, I recognized that for the first one that I'm trying to pull in, there's enough dynamic behavior there that just implementing these as Rails forms and traditional Rails views might not give me everything that I needed. So I contemplated different options uh, as to how to do it. I knew I'd need at least a little bit of JavaScript, but I didn't know exactly how I wanted to approach that. But the The version that I've ended up with right now is using Inertia. So Inertia.js to sort of render the client functionality, but still using Rails routing and Rails controllers. And then I've picked up Svelte as the front-end rendering technology. So an even more out-there choice. And I think that's probably the more interesting one. So again, pretending that you are the tech lead of the team that I'm on, What sort of questions would you ask as I bring this harebrained PR up with a bunch of new technologies and an interesting approach to what should have been some Rails views?
1: All right. Uh, So questions, where to start? Um, All right. So there's five React apps. I'm just going to recap a little bit because it helps me think through it. Um, We have an API that is serving all of those five React apps. And you're folding a number of those features back into the API. So essentially turning the rails app so it's no longer just an api but also renders a number of the front end features as well
0: uh yes although the api rails app does do some view rendering already so it's not purely it's not a rails api mode version of rails it's just a regular rails app that happens to have a json api built into it
1: cool so i'm intrigued that you brought in inertia and svelte i'm less familiar i haven't used inertia and i'm also less familiar with svelte so i think that would be my first question is what are those and why did you bring both of them in
0: so for being completely honest, I watched a video on the internet about Svelte, and I got really excited about it. And I thought, I would like to use that technology. But I think I got excited about Svelte for the right reasons. So one thing that I've noticed is there's this distinction between Rails apps that render HTML on the server using Rails views. That gets sent down, you submit a form, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and then client-side rendered apps and they have their own routing and their own logic. You basically just send down a ball of JavaScript, it boots up, and it does everything. And that dichotomy, in my mind, is too extreme. So I've been spending a lot of my time trying to find a middle ground. I think having some sort of JavaScript rendering or some interactivity, some additional interactivity on the front end is becoming more and more of a requirement. Uh, I can't just render static HTML and have that be enough. People want multi-select dropdowns and they want animated transitions. And these these are the things that people are coming to expect in apps that we're building. But I don't want to give up on everything else. And so Inertia is the technology that provides the ability to use a framework like React or Svelte or Vue to build out my uh, pages in the app, but not have to fully adopt a client-centric mode. So I don't have any client-side routing is probably the most critical aspect of that. As for Svelte, I wanted to go as little into that world as possible. I wanted it to be possible for a page that's almost purely static HTML to be very, very lightweight. And that's where Svelte actually really wins. With React, the minimum payload that you're going to deal with is... I forget what the actual numbers are, but I want to say it's somewhere... It's between 50 and 100 kilobytes. That's just the base... None of your code is even running. That's just React and React DOM. Whereas Svelte can actually sort of make itself go away. It compiles down to the minimum JavaScript necessary, and that ends up being very small. And so Svelte is really interesting to me as a technology that can scale from almost nothing up to more complex client-side stuff. And so having that linear growth, if you will, uh, like my regular views... They're pretty minimal. They're still very lightweight. They render quickly, et cetera. But my more complex pages, I can scale up to that without having to fundamentally change the technology I'm using to build the page. But again, I I recognize that I'm bringing a bunch of fancy, shiny,
1: new things to this. It is a bunch of fancy, shiny. And I'm pretty sure we had an episode where you dove into about inertia because you were very excited about it. So we can include a link to that in the show notes. And Svelte is that new, new that I'm not familiar with, but I have seen uh, mentioned or heard mentioned once or twice. For the features that you're folding into the Rails app, it is handy to know all the features that you are bringing over, and I'm guessing it seems like all those features are going to fit nicely with the use felt, and you're not going to end up in a world where you've chosen a framework or a library that then isn't going to be able to accommodate some of the future features that you're going to fold in?
0: Uh, yes, very much so. Um, specifically, the, the existing React applications actually have a lot of animated transitions and sort of fancy UI and... I don't think it would be a requirement based on the conversations we've had. There's some comfort in simplifying them a little bit. But nonetheless, that's sort of the, the baseline that I'm working against. And so if I lose all of that and now it's just full page reloads and it's a bit slower and it doesn't have any of the animated transitions i think that would be viewed as somewhat of a loss but what's nice is svelte actually has built into it a bunch of animations and transitions and motion libraries and things like that that are just part of svelte's from the get-go so not only is it achievable but it's actually part of the core offering of svelte which is part of what drew me to it is i think those sort of things animations and transitions in particular are this weirdly high hurdle for rails rendered views and yet if you go into javascript land you can easily you know sort of embrace them but i don't want to go all the way to react for that i don't want to have to take on 75 kilobytes of extra javascript just so i get one animated transition
1: now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor one of the greatest challenges we all face is taking in all the information that's available and knowing where to focus It's the same problem with hiring. With Indeed, you have access to the largest pool of talent and can hire the right people fast.
0: Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire.
1: With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job posts, which means more quality candidates will see it fast.
0: Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Bikeshed. That's all one word, B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. This is the best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash bike shed. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December thirty first.
1: Thank you again to Indeed for sponsoring today's episode. So this is where it's tricky because I'm fairly biased because this is coming from you, and I know you told me to treat this as a scenario where it's someone totally new. Because a lot of my questions would then focus around like maintainability? How is this going to change like our dynamics with a team? How comfortable are folks going to be with this? Are you someone that I feel confidence in that you're going to help other people be able to ramp up with this new knowledge? So then they can also implement features as well. So you're not like the lone person who is then rolling these features over to a new technology, but then no one else knows how to work with them. So those would be a lot of my questions. But with you, I have less of those concerns because the answer is uh, yes to all of those where I know you've done like the research and maintainability and that you are also someone that can then help other people level up. What does that hurdle look like for other folks to then start working with inertia and Svelte? Inertia, from what I recall, when you spoke about it, seemed fairly friendly for people that are new to it to then start using it. But how's Svelte, is that going to be something that's for the team that you're on? Are they going to transition over to it fairly easily? Are they also excited about this?
0: So just to to recap, because you said a bunch of things in there that I think are fantastic questions around this, and maybe we can even loop back to a few of them. But those sort of things, I think, are the considerations that matter in this sort of case and making sure that it is not a developer picking a technology merely because they want to play with it. Because I think that's a way that we get ourselves in trouble constantly. So frankly, some of this is uh, just therapy for me and making sure I'm not doing that. I don't think I am, but I can't trust myself. I'm, I'm not a trustworthy narrator. In terms of how the rest of the team feels about it, I actually have not spoken with them yet about it. Uh, There's really only one other developer who works on the back end. So I will definitely have that chat. There isn't even a PR yet or anything like that. So this is I'm still in the exploratory phase where I kind of reached for it and was interested in would this even work? What does this feel like bringing it into Webpacker? How does that all I wanted to make sure there wouldn't be any major hurdles And then from there, you know, start to have the conversation of here's this new technology. I'm happy. Absolutely what you're saying of, will you make sure other developers are comfortable working in this world? I think that's absolutely a critical aspect of it and definitely something that I would plan to do. One of the things that I like about Svelte is it's very, very uh, minimal. So React, you have to learn a whole paradigm. It's this whole thing. And the components in Svelte are just files and they contain HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And they're just sort of broken up into little sections. But it's very, like, you can just take a Rails view, rename it to be Svelte. You have to take out any ERB stuff and change that to, like, the correct type of interpolation. But otherwise, it is just HTML at that point. And then you can add a script tag in there and that script tag gets run in the context of that HTML. And the same thing, actually, the CSS gets automatically scoped. So there's a lot of things that... You don't even really like need to learn it you just do what would sort of make sense and you can run with that and as there's more complex things felt definitely has some new concepts that you would need to learn but what's interesting is it it feels a lot more like jquery in a very good way where you can just sort of like sprinkle it on you can just try some things and stuff is more accessible whereas i remember learning react it was this whole thing that i had to learn it's this whole new way of thinking about it don't worry it's going to be great i promise the trade will be there and i i love react so that's coming from me, but Svelte is, it just feels much lighter weight. So the initial talk that I mentioned that was the one that got me really interested is from the recent Svelte Summit, which I think was this week. I don't know how time works anymore, but the closing keynote was the creator of Svelte, Rich Harris, talking about his plans for the future and where he sees the project going. And I, was, I just loved everything that he was sharing there. Uh, so we can include a link to that in the show notes. There was another talk of his that I watched, which was, I want to say it's Write Less, Do More which is one of the prevailing themes of Svelte. And I love that idea. So it's not a bunch of complicated code that you need to learn how to work with. It's actually, that's just minimal pieces to sort of wire stuff up. So I'm hopeful that the learning curve is much, much lower as a result. So if somebody needs to just like make a new page, that's pretty straightforward. And if they want to do enhanced fancy stuff, then yes, they'll have to learn a little bit of that, but they can learn that as necessary. We can work together on that. I don't really know what I'm learning it as I go, but it's very accessible is what I found so far.
1: Awesome. So yeah, still playing our roles. I'm at the point where I honestly don't have the confidence to say like good idea, like bad idea. Uh, so which way it would go, but good idea in the sense of like, you're exploring it. It seems to meet all the needs you're scoping out a feature using this work and then transitioning to like bringing someone else in that's on the team and saying like, Hey, I'm interested in taking our tech in this direction. Let's implement maybe like another feature together using this new tech and see how it goes. And then making a decision. This feels like one of those decisions that like, it's going to need a few more iterations before finally knowing like if it was a good idea, bad idea. That's my straddling the fence answer.
0: I think it's a it's a great answer. These sort of things are hard to pin down. Let me phrase the question slightly differently. What would be your biggest concerns? What are the the bad outcomes that you can imagine here?
1: In my mind, I think the bad outcomes would be that you end up having to pivot to React, anyways. So folding the apps back in is not the ideal solution. And it ends up leading to a state where then people start wondering if they should really split them back out again, or if you still need to reintroduce React. So you end up going from having these React apps to a Rails app with Svelte and Inertia to then saying like, oh, no, we really should have gone back to React. So let's migrate again over to using React. And then the other concern would be introducing technology that the rest of the team doesn't want to adopt. So there's now this portion of the code base that nobody wants to touch and doesn't really understand how to work with. And then if you were to leave that team, and then they're just stuck in that state. So then they move on to some other technology that they are familiar with. So they have this weird part in their code base that nobody has been able to transition over from, but didn't fully adopt either. So it's just sort of like frozen in that space. I think those are my two primary concerns. They're more team concerns than like technical concerns. Like the implementation stuff doesn't worry me as much, but it's more like... Is this team going to be able to continue to ship at a reasonable rate if they transition over to like this new stack?
0: Yeah, those those totally make sense. And I think are the same sort of things that I would be considering in this and am considering. I'm totally doing the things I'm supposed to do and thinking about it. Uh, I think the one other one I've I've talked with a few other people, I now have that like, I'm very excited about Svelte. And so I'm talking to people about it. And one of the little bits of pushback I've gotten is Svelte seems to be decidedly the least popular of those three big frameworks, uh, React, Vue and Svelte. And so, am I concerned about that? Am I concerned that there isn't enough community there, that there won't be the Stack Overflow answers? Sort of, we've answered this a few times about Ruby and its changing popularity over time, although this is the front edge of it. So, this is just a newer technology with fewer people working in it. Is there any concern that the team will stop supporting it and stop producing it? Because it is a, a relatively small core team. Is there any concern that it's just going to go away or that not enough people are going to use it? And then I won't be able to get a Stack Overflow answer when something goes weird. Uh, and those are actually very real concerns, frankly. Thankfully, it's small enough that I feel like I'm not building my entire application in Svelte at this point. The nature, like there's still a lot of Rails in there, which is one of the things that I love. And inertia is binding things together in a way that I feel confident in. And Svelte is just a little bit of dynamic view stuff. But Nonetheless, I think that last round of concerns is definitely a a real one that I'm keeping in the back of my mind.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that one. Um, The word popularity always makes me sort of like... Not cringe is too strong of a word, but I hesitate in using that word as to whether like something is the more popular choice, because in my mind, I prefer like stable and documentation over popularity. So if we have stability and documentation, then that still feels like a very reasonable choice to me versus popularity can have a lot of misleading statistics that are then elevating a framework's popularity. So that one doesn't concern me as much, but to flip the question around to you as a person who has spent the most time in introducing these new ideas, what are your concerns with them? Like what issues have you run into that's made you think twice? What areas do you see that could be a hurdle down the road? Like what's sort of like your worst outcome? Like if this were to go poorly, what's your concern of how it would go poorly?
0: Yeah. Flipping the table on me, flipping the script. I think everything that you said, the two primary things that you highlighted of, will we need to reverse this technological decision down the line? That's definitely a concern and getting other people in the team feeling comfortable in it. Two big concerns, but ones that I feel like I can get past. Or in the first case for, well, we need to unwind this. Even if we needed to pivot to React, we can still use parts of this. So because I'm moving it into Inertia, Inertia can also talk to React. So I could just make that switch. But at the end of the day, they can sort of both do the same kind of thing. So I don't see that being the reality. Uh, and I feel like the move into the core Rails app is a very good one. So I feel good about those choices. And I would be surprised if we ended up unwinding any of them. Getting someone else up to speed, that's work to be done, but work that I, I feel confident in being able to do. The popularity of the community, I, I really like the way you reframed the word popularity because I totally agree that that's a course metric for other things that we care about. Uh, and actually, the documentation that I found and the like ability to learn in the felt space has been great. So I feel reasonably comfortable about that. Uh, I think the other one that comes to mind is implementation overhead. If it's this newer technology that hasn't yet been used in all of the different ways we need it. So like, how will it work in the context of feature specs? Is that just going to be easier? Do I have to do custom things to make that work? Or how about within Webpacker? Do I need to do custom things to make it load in Webpacker? And what about writing tests? How do we write tests for this sort of thing? If we want to just focus down And that is a part that I haven't gotten myself fully comfortable with. But that is a set of questions that I have right now to make sure I feel comfortable with this as a technological decision. Uh, Again, because it's scoped smaller, I'm not building a Svelte app. I'm just using Svelte to add a little bit of interactivity to the front end. I'm not as concerned, but it's those sort of things that I would definitely look at as well. Like, are we going to pay an ongoing sort of maintenance penalty for having this technology in our stack that we need to own? And ideally, the question is no in those cases. In some cases, it can be worth it, but I don't think it would be in this case if we needed to do a bunch of extra work and wiring up and patching of bugs and things like that.
1: Yeah, I think it's fairly rare that teams want to be the first into like a new space or be the ones that are creating a lot of like content around a particular like new framework or tool. Those are really good questions too, like around like testing. How does that look? And then how does it fit into like deployments and CI builds? And yeah, thanks. You helped do my job for me in asking all those questions.
0: You are welcome. And actually, just a quick note to anyone out there that's listening. uh, I did enjoy this sort of let's talk through this decision that way. And I think I was playing a little bit of devil's advocate here, but overall, I have absolutely loved the work that I've done with Svelte so far. Svelte 3, which is a relatively, I think it's maybe a year old, something like that. But it seems to be a fantastic iteration of the project. They seem to be heading in a great direction. So overall, I feel great about it. And I'm super excited to explore it more with the one caveat that it's definitely not functional in the like functional programming style. So I just got to get comfortable with that. But I think that actually may be beneficial for the type of work and the type of organizations that I'm working with. I don't need to try and Teach everybody about monads and functors. That doesn't seem fun for anyone. So we can just get some stuff done. But I'm super excited about Svelte. So just to give that aside for anyone that's listening and wondering if I'm really hedging my bets there. Now I, I think this is a good choice for this organization and also something that I'm going to be exploring more for broader usage. But yes, with that um, parenthetical aside closed, uh, I think that that sums it up. I feel reasonable moving forward. Thank you, tech lead, for um, for talking through this complicated situation with me.
1: Certainly. My door is always open. You
0: have a door? You have an (laughs) office? You're not an open (laughs)
1: office? No, of course. I'm in tech. It's always an open office. Um, (laughs) Your metaphorical
0: (laughs) door is always metaphorically open, but not if I have headphones on.
1: Uh, Yeah, no, this is fun. I love when we have these types of questions. Um, And I'm certainly intrigued to hear how it goes and what the other developer uh, thinks about Svelte.
0: I will certainly report back. Uh, But with that, should we wrap up?
1: Let's wrap up.
0: Show notes for this episode can be found at Bikeshed.fm.
1: This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski.
0: If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review on iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show.
1: If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bikeshed or reach me on Twitter at S.
0: And I'm at Chris Toomey.
1: Or you can email us at hosts at Bikeshed.fm.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the Bikeshed and we'll see you next week.
1: Bye. Bye.